You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClinton. And I was thinking, Wade, now that we're past the 250 episode milestone, maybe a little bit of a rebranding is in order. I suggest the new name for the podcast be, wait for it, Podcast Team. Wow, Kevin, that's that's incredible. And and who says we have to keep this on planet Earth? We could we could send out our podcast to the moon. How hard could it be, really? What's the worst that could happen? Today in the episode, we're reviewing the new Netflix comedy from Steve Carell and Greg Daniels, Space Force. We also have a new biopic on the docket for you, Josephine Decker's new film about the author Shirley Jackson, titled Shirley, is coming up in the second half of the episode. And we surely are going to have a fun time on episode 251 of Seeing and Believing. I want to welcome our newest four-star general, Mark Naird, formerly number two at the Air Force. Thank you. It has always been my dream to command a service branch. Our nation's internet runs through our vulnerable space satellites. POTUS wants complete space dominance. To that end, the president is creating a new branch, Space Force, which Mark will run. What? Listeners, this is episode 251 of Seeing and Believing. Kevin, we are always trying to offer our listeners a creative intro. I think the introduction today was pretty creative, and I do have to say, when we did our Michael Caine impressions a couple of episodes back for our review for a trip to Greece, my wife Priscilla heard it, and she said it was funny. So that's a win in my book. I am overjoyed to hear that. I was a little bit scared to inflict our terrible Michael Caine <laughs> impressions on on my wife. So it's good to know that that Priscilla got some got some enjoyment out of it. Maybe I should. Well, no, I was about to say maybe I should break it out and, and play it for Kylie <laughs> after all, but eh, maybe not. <laughs> you know, Priscilla doesn't listen to every episode, but she'll listen to episodes. She'll ask my opinion about films. And if she disagrees with me about a movie, she's always like, I need to come on the podcast and set this straight. And I said, why don't we just have an all wives podcast episode? And it's just you and Kylie and you talk about how wrong we are. I think it would be great listening. I I think it would be awesome. I would listen to that. I I'd be happy for the time off, and I'd love to, you know, have have uh, two guests on the show instead of just one guest, just sort of duking it out and in their own way. That'd be cool. Yes. Now, when I say how we're wrong, I I don't mean in general, just about films. Uh, we have to keep that because the episode has to be within the time frame. It can't go over too long. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, mate, that seems like a good guardrail to have in place. <laughs> well, speaking of hapless characters, this week's episode begins with a glance at the new Netflix comedy, Space Force. I love saying Space Force, Kevin. Created by Steve Carell and Greg Daniels, Space Force introduces viewers to the trials and the tribulations of a four-star general played by Carell, whose sole mission is to get boots on the moon by 2024. Over the course of its 10-episode first season, General Nayard teams up with his opposite, Dr. Adrian Mallory, played by John Malkovich, to thwart Chinese and Russian interference, as well as meet the expectations set by a president who enacts policy via Twitter. Ben Swartz, Diana Silvers, Tawny Newsom, and Jimmy O. Yang also co-star. Kevin, in the past, we've talked a little bit about some of Daniels' previous television programs, most notably The Office, and I think we've even mentioned Parks and Rec. Now, inevitably, Space Force, an unusual workplace comedy, will draw comparisons to those two properties. To get our discussion started, I want to ask you this. In your opinion... How does Space Force stack up against television shows like The Office and Parks and Rec? Is it a new classic or is it a mostly forgettable fare? Well, you can definitely tell that Space Force sprang from some of the same minds that The Office and Parks and Rec did because it does kind of share a similar perspective 
on its characters, which is that they're basically they're they're flawed, but they're basically lovable, and you can tell that the the writers really want the best for General Naird and the people around him. To, they they want him to succeed in their endeavor to make Space Force the best Space Force that it can be, and I think. Part of my problem with Space Force is similar to my problem with The Office and Parks and Recreation is that Greg Daniels just, he, there's something about uh, the way that he does comedy, which is that he really just, he can't help but love the characters he creates, which which is nice in a show, for instance, like Parks and Recreation, where it's basically kind of an up with people, optimistic look at humanity and state government. With Space Force and the U.S. office, particularly the latter seasons of the U.S. office, I think it begins to drag the show down as there are these characters who kind of over time become a little bit more... Um, more cuddly than they really should be given what we know about them. With Space Force, I, I feel like the show starts off really strong, but over time it begins to get a little bit wearisome how Greg Daniels kind of wants to pull all of his punches when it comes to General Naird himself. There's just enough of an impulse uh, to, to make the audience love General Naird rather than just enjoy watching a show about General Naird that I think eventually, for me, drags the show down and makes it somewhat less than the sum of its parts. Well, you say the show started strong. I don't think it started... It was never strong at all. I am not a fan of Space Force. And I'm sure we'll talk about character development. I'm sure we'll talk about plot. I think for me, the the biggest offense is that Space Force isn't very funny. It's a comedy, but I didn't find myself laughing all that much. Humor can cover a multitude of sins. And you mentioned some of the weaknesses of The Office and some of the weaknesses of Parks and Rec. And there are weaknesses in those television shows. But most of the time, those television shows are very funny. This one isn't. And so I found myself just sort of, I don't know, wondering why I was watching this television show. And obviously I'm I'm watching the first season because we are reviewing the first season. But what keeps me going if I don't have to finish this? And I'm I'm not really sure if there's anything that keeps me going because this is just I think it's just a mess, Kevin. I, I really do. <laughs> Well, let's let's drill down a little bit into why it's not funny because I do agree that after about the the second episode, I was I began to start checking my watch during episodes, kind of wondering, okay, well, when you know when are we going to get to the the big payoff or or the the huge belly laugh or or the really sharp writing that will kind of enliven what I'm seeing on screen a little bit. And the reason I say that the first episode worked for me is. Or, or the reason I said that the show starts strong, I should say, is that the first episode I thought really did make me laugh. I I liked the the sketch of the characters that we got in that first episode. It, just Fred Willard's appearance, which was you know given his recent passing, was just it was good for my heart to see him there. I mean, he he had he said one line and it just made me burst out laughing. And I think that there's enough there that we can. I was looking forward to the episodes to come because thought, okay, well, all the ingredients are here for a very funny series. I want to see where this goes. I think the problem for me is that it never really goes anywhere interesting. The, char- the, the sketches of the characters that we get in that pilot don't really get developed over the course of this, year, of this first season. We don't really get a whole lot in their relationships that we don't see in that first episode. And in fact, over time, the characters begin to get a little bit more friendly with each other than 
they were in the first episode. There was kind of this adversarial relationship that Naird had with uh, the scientist, uh, Dr. Mallory, played by a great John Malkovich. Uh, there was uh, some, some nice adversarial stuff going on between uh, some of the other characters as well. I was even looking forward to seeing maybe if the very outlines of political satire that we get with the Congress people that are in the first episode, I was looking forward to seeing if maybe that would get sketched out. I think the problem is Greg Daniels and, and Steve Carell and their writers don't really, they don't ever really follow through on that promise. And and in fact, those adversarial spikier elements of the writing kind of get toned down into something that becomes a lot more palatable. We get a lot of scenes that really kind of want you to emotionally invest in these characters. And I think that's all wrong for this material. It kind of wants to be more like an Armando Iannucci satire. And it ends up feeling like Armando Iannucci with all of his teeth pulled. There's just, there's no <laughs> bite there. I, I thought of uh, the death of Stalin when I watched this. And then I also thought of Dr. Strangelove from Stanley Kubrick. And this television show comes nowhere close to either of those properties, but we get sharp political satire in those films. And I, I think this television show wants to do that. And we are in a difficult place for satire. There are direct references in this television show to the Trump administration. And it's not even that the show is exaggerating certain elements. It's just pulling from headlines. And as a result, it's, I don't know, it just doesn't seem all that funny. It, it feels like low-hanging fruit. And I, I think I've said this before about other films or television shows that are, quote-unquote, about this administration. And... I, I was thinking about a tweet, and I believe the tweet was from Matt Zollersides. I believe it was from him. And he mentioned the films that will be made about COVID-19 and the pandemic. And then he said something that surprised me, but I think it's true. He says, out of all of those, Spielberg will probably make something that's not about the pandemic, and yet it will speak to the pandemic more than anything else. And I was thinking of Death of Stalin. I was even thinking, as I mentioned, Dr. Strangelove. And these properties that are certainly about social issues, but they're taking this, this roundabout approach. Now, Space Force goes at it directly. I just don't know if there's enough here to really make that bite. And you mentioned taking teeth out. And that's certainly... What it, what it feels like. And then you were talking about Steve Carell's character. At first, I didn't know if, if he was supposed to be this lovable buffoon, this shrewd thinker. I didn't know if they were going to turn him dark. And in the end, I think they, they really lean towards lovable buffoon. But there's not enough there to even actually make me care. I, I'd rather him be terrible. I'm, I'd rather him be just infuriating than to be what he is now because it just feels very bland. And I don't really care about him. And I, I don't know why we're supposed to care so much about the relationships around him because, as you mentioned, they're not developed. And I think the one that stands out the most to me is the relationship with the general and his daughter, who's played by Diana Silvers. They allude to problems in episode one, and we just don't get any depth. The most is, oh, he doesn't spend enough time with her. That, that's really it. And there could have been some really great material mined there, and it, it just wasn't explored. There's very little specificity in the relationships you're right, and I think that extends also to the... It, it's satirical vision as well, if you can even say that it has a satirical vision. The reason that an Iannucci film or series such as, you know, like Veep, for instance, is a show that's all about politics and where Veep succeeds and Space Force doesn't is that Veep seems to have a very strong vision of what people in politics are like 
rather than just sort of like pulling from the headlines, oh, there's this ridiculous thing that this one congressperson did, it kind of synthesizes that headline into an overall worldview of what the human animal is like when it's in the world of politics. Similarly, Strangelove has a very particular view of what human nature is like when it's when it's just armed with these enormously destructive weapons and has the power and the will to use them. Like what what is what does that vision of human nature look like in general? And having that worldview, Kubrick can then go in and make it specific and sharp and very very funny because he knows exactly kind of what he's trying to say, what his satirical targets are, and how that fits into an overall perspective. I think the problem with Space Force is its perspective can really be summed up as, isn't Space Force kind of wacky? Aren't buttons down generals a little bit silly? Aren't, you know, presidents who don't care about science ridiculous? Like, it's all kind of very nebulous. And yes, all of those things are true. Like, those things are kind of silly and and wacky and ridiculous. But there's not really, like, there needs to be something underneath that. Like, anybody can make a comedy about people, silly people acting silly. I think the challenge is to make a comedy about silly people acting silly that actually has some sort of perspective on well what does that what does that mean you know like why why is it why is this why are we watching this instead of just watching people throwing pies in each other's faces and i don't think that space force really has that it's kind of just a collection of quirks and uh some characters who are thrown into a relationship in various configurations but there's no real glue holding it together in terms of a perspective on well, who are these characters really? How do they fit into the world around them? And what does that kind of speak to our current moment? There's not really any of that, which may not be a problem for a show that's not really going for contemporary commentary, but Space Force is very much trying for that. And the fact that it fails so spectacularly mm-hmm. is definitely a problem. It, it is. It is trying for that. I will say there, there is one episode, uh, episode five, it's directed by Dee Reese, and she directed the 2017 film Mudbound that we really liked. We we weren't big fans of her 2020 film, The Last Thing He Wanted, that premiered on Netflix. But she directed, I, th- I believe, two episodes. And one of them was, it really revolved around this War Games sequence between Space Force and between the Air Force. And there are some silly, strange sort of elements to this episode. But I liked how the episode highlighted this this stretch for violence, even when attempting to go to the moon. And so these two forces, they are going to be shooting at each other with BBs in an attempt to pop balloons. And that represents them popping an astronaut suit. And so the idea is, okay, if you are on the moon and you're fighting with Russia or China, uh, then uh, you've got to learn how to uh, survive. And then they're also testing out these other contraptions that will help them. And throughout this episode, they highlight just the macho-ness of these characters. And there are a couple of scenes, uh, some of the set designs, that reminded me a little bit of Dr. Strangelove, that they emphasized these sort of ideas about warfare and our proclivity to violence and then in the episode there's this the science competition and nobody seems to care even though it's very very important instead they all care about this bb gun battle i also think it's probably the funniest episode and i would have liked to see a little bit more of that in the television show there's a lot of it and it feels very on the nose but it didn't dig into anything that, I don't know if you'd say revelatory, but it didn't shine any new lights on this material. And so as a result, I just, I felt disengaged from the characters, from the the plot, and also from what this television show is saying exactly. Is it saying that going to the moon is just us spending a ton of money that we don't have? Or is it trying to figure out uh, the balance between what drives us to go to a place like this? Uh, could it be a negative drive or 
in addition, could, could there be some positive aspects? And the television show just doesn't really do that. I will agree with you, Kevin, that John Malkovich is very good. He's one of the best aspects of this television show, and I would have loved to see him just duke it out with Steve Carell a little bit more, but they kind of make amends at the end of the first episode, it feels like. I mean, they they argue a little bit, but it's not, it doesn't feel like a rivalry, Uh, and that's kind of sad because it takes away some of the conflict. I, I th- and I think that kind of highlights part of like my overall problem with Space Force, which is that you know it it does seem to often kind of purport to offer some sort of satirical viewpoint on just to name one example uh, the the conflict between uh, science and uh, the military or or machoness like there there's often this perspective that science in this reality doesn't really matter, which, you know, is not exactly something that's going to blow anybody's mind who's living in our reality. That's definitely something that's occurring here as well. But the problem is that the central character who kind of represents the scientific rational viewpoint and the one who's who acts as sort of the, the person putting the brakes on Naird's uh, jingoistic, you know, rah rah America outlook is Dr. Mallory, but Greg Daniels can't really resist having them be buddies at the end, and I think that that kind of sinks the whole enterprise. If if he's really trying to create something that effectively satirizes certain elements of our own reality, is just if everybody ends up being buddy buddy at the end, that doesn't really feel like an accurate reflection of the way things actually are. And it doesn't really seem to feel true to who these characters are as well. Why why Nerd and Mallory can make up at the end rather than constantly being at loggerheads over the use of Mallory's science for Nerd's uh, war making, there's never really any attempt to harmonize those. It's just sort of, they kind of hug and make up at the end of every episode and we move on to the next episode. It's kind of this weird, it's sitcom logic applied to a movie that otherwise is trying to position itself much more as a a political satire or something that's trying to do more than just being an entertaining 30 minutes of sitcom comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and when it's not all that entertaining, that becomes even uh, bigger of a problem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I will say too, and I'm trying to put my finger on it, trying to explain it. There's this level of absurdity to the television show. So there's one scene, it's real quick, where Steve Carell accidentally pushes a button in the control room and it launches a rocket into space and I think it blows up. So it's absurd, right? That would never happen in real life. And I feel like the, this, the television show can't find that balance, the, the balance between absurdity and believability. And it's as if they kind of go back and forth and they, they make rules and they break rules. And it's just so distant from this world that we live in, in some respects. I mentioned that some political aspects feel like they're pulled from the headlines. It was hard for me to to believe or to buy into what was happening. And I don't know exactly how to express that, but it has to do with the tone, the absurdity, the believability, and how this television show mixes it all together. And it just, for me, it isn't all that coherent. Yeah, I, I, I think that's maybe a good way to just sum it up as a whole is that it's just... There's a lot of different ingredients that maybe could theoretically work, but tossed together in the way they are in this series, they they simply don't. Listeners, that is our review of Netflix's new television show, Space Force. If you've had a chance to watch all or some of the episodes since they released, we'd love to know your thoughts. You can email us those at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We'd also love to hear from you on Twitter at cbelievepod. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be kicking off our second segment with a review of Josephine Decker's Shirley.
That song is Vegetarian by David Cricket. You know, listeners, we very much appreciate all of you who've taken the time to support us. One way that you can support us is by hopping on our Patreon page and becoming a monthly donor. We have a number of different donation levels, and one of our favorites is the what can you buy for $5 level. Kevin, what could someone buy for five bucks? Five bucks would get you some stilts so that you don't have to wear uh, a mask while you go outside. You can just be above the fray, literally, because you're three feet taller than everyone else. So there's no chance of droplets either reaching you or getting from you to them. I don't know if that's actually how infectious diseases work, but I don't know. It's only five bucks. So what, what, okay. how much how much prevention do you expect to get out of $5 stilts? Yeah. Well, I, I said it earlier. What's the worst that could happen? I, I will say <laughs> it might protect you, but the droplets could hypothetically fall on someone else. We are not medical advisors, so... Whatever you do, listeners, it's at your own risk. Uh, $5 will get you that, or you can support us. Just hop on over to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash sing, underscore believing, underscore podcast. You are putting on clean clothes and sitting at the table for a proper meal. I can't. You will. Besides, it's cocktail hour. <laughs> up, 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 up. It's going to be so dull. Oh. I didn't ask you to behave at the table. We're back with the second half of our show. I was trying to think of a nice spooky way to put that, you know, something like, (laughs) you know, the beginning of the haunting of Hill House, like whatever walked there, walked alone, you know, something creepy. But I I don't know that segment intros in a podcast really lend themselves to that kind of mystique. No, I... I don't know. I mean, we could put a, a synthesizer on you and maybe some mood music that that could help. But I don't know. I, I'd be I'd be pretty frightened if that happened. Yeah, I, I think that it's probably best not to <laughs> monkey with things over much. I mean, if if we do have a synthesizer or maybe a, some theremin music, like a nice theremin intro to the second segment might might do the trick but for now i guess we'll just have to leave it be and turn to our discussion of the movie that looks at the life of the person who wrote the haunting of hill house shirley jackson shirley is director josephine decker's follow-up to 2018's madeline's madeline another film that dealt with the blurred line between story and reality in this film elizabeth moss plays shirley jackson the famous writer of works like the haunting of hill house and the short story read in high school english classes everywhere the lottery We first meet Jackson as a mercurial shut-in, living in a huge house with her English professor husband, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, as a young couple moves in with them temporarily while they search for more temporary housing. That's a setup straight out of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Edward Albee's play that was later made into a movie about the curdled relationships among a bunch of academics, and at first that seems to be the direction that Shirley is going in. But before long, Decker takes us out of that realm and into a realm that's more elliptical and deals much more with Jackson's creative process and how her relationships play into the writing of her latest novel. So, Wade, this is a film that is a biopic, and you and I have been a little bit down on biopics in the past just in terms of how they adhere a little bit too much to formula, when they present real-life figures to us. My question for you is, given that Shirley doesn't adhere quite as much to that formula, did that help at all in your viewing of this film? Or do you find that this is another film that must be relegated, sadly, to the biopics aren't that great pile? (laughs) Well, this reminds me of a biopic that we disagreed on uh, that I liked when you were talking about this and and that was the Danny Boyle uh, Steve Jobs biopic that I felt like was unconventional and worked really well you didn't like it uh, so mm-hmm. this this film surely uh, very different from from Steve Jobs but it is unconventional and I do have to applaud Decker 
because she approaches this story from a completely different angle. And if I understand correctly, this is actually based on a novel that is based on Shirley Jackson. So very much from the beginning, we get the sense that this is not a life story that's going to give us the ins and outs of Jackson's history, but hopefully let us in on the ethos of her work. And in that sense, I think the movie does succeed. Now, my response to it is is probably not a great gauge of that film's success because I, I didn't really enjoy the movie all that much. There's only so much I can take of really mean artists who are jerks <laughs> who at the end of the story create something great. I, I It just, it didn't work for me on that level. I think gender roles are explored better here than some of other biopics that I've seen, but I don't know if there was enough to really, to really hook me. But that's, that's also a personal preference and just the way I reacted to the movie. And I'm sure that other people really just kind of gobble this up, especially if they had that personal connection to, to Jackson's work. <laughs> so, so mean artists who are jerks is not the, uh, the quick ticket into Wade's good graces. Though. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> right. Now, I guess Steve Jobs was a jerk in the film. So maybe I do break the rules sometimes. Yeah, I mean, if if you pay attention to that film, it would it would argue that Jobs is an artist of sorts. So I don't know. Maybe there are exceptions to to every mm-hmm. rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we'll we'll have to see when the next uh, mean artist who is a jerk movie <laughs> comes out later on. Um, I I think that this film was was tremendously engaging, and it sounds like I enjoyed it uh, a little bit more than you did. I think. What I appreciate about Decker's approach is how, I don't know, I guess backing up, the one thing that we complained about with movies like, say, Bohemian Rhapsody or, uh, well, there was, a, there was another Rocket biopic. Man, maybe? It might, might have been Rocket Man. Essentially, these movies that kind of try to let us into the creative process somehow. Like they show an artist creating something that will go (laughs) on to be known as, you know, a a seminal piece of work or their most famous album or something like that. And something that you and I have complained about before on the show is how these sequences never really do a good job of making, uh, of letting us as the audience in on what it feels like to create. Like what does the creative impulse feel like for this person that we're watching on screen? Like what what is the experience of creating like? We all know what the end result is, but what's it like to be kind of in the thick of making something or in the thick of imagining something or conceptualizing a work that has never existed before in the history of mankind? That's kind of what these artists are are supposed to do. And in this film, I think that it does actually a, a very good job of bringing us into that headspace a little bit more. And I think Decker does that by kind of taking a much more uh, elliptical approach where she, we're kind of moving around the, she relies a lot on shallow focus where we see what's in the foreground and what's in the background is kind of kind of blurry, kind of fuzzy, but there's still stuff moving around back there that we can kind of just barely uh, glimpse and try to um, try to make out, you know, who it is or what's going on back there. And I think these stylistic choices end up coming together in a way that isn't really, you can't really articulate why, or at least I can't really articulate why for me, it does really bring me into what this version of Shirley Jackson might have been feeling and experiencing as she's in the thick of writing this novel and using the people around her as inspiration. Odessa Young plays the uh, the young wife of this uh, professor who's the assistant to uh, Shirley Jackson's husband, played by Michael Stuhlbarg. And this young wife kind of becomes the inspiration for Jackson to write this novel about a young woman who disappears 
and what might have been uh, going through this woman's head uh, as she uh, as she walked down the path towards her disappearance. And I think Decker does a really good job of making us feel what that might be like. I think in the end, there, there are parts of it that I feel like maybe don't quite cohere into something great by the end, but I did appreciate all of the moving parts that Josephine Decker brings to the fore here. And I think it gives the, it gives the film this very interesting texture that I think is so often missing from biopics and stories about artists in general. Yeah, I, I appreciate that you pointed out the idea of creation. And I've talked about that scene in Bohemian Rhapsody where you know, Freddie Mercury is he's at a table and he's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it, yeah. And, you know, here the, the camera has is a lot of POV shots, uh, tight shots, handheld shots. We get the sense that we're watching characters. The camera is shooting across individuals. They're out of focus and we're watching a conversation from afar. And so the form of the movie sets itself up as this intimate look at the struggle, the fight to create something great and something meaningful and we don't get elizabeth moss's jackson who's just erratic and everywhere and then just decides okay i'm gonna sit down and i'm gonna write this and there's a montage and we get the novel she's constantly working on this story she is thinking about lines she's daydreaming she is typing she's getting angry and by the end of the movie, you do feel like, oh, wow, I, you know, writing, creating is not easy. It is hard. It is so hard to, to write a book. It's, it's like, you know, people say, you know, writing a book is like giving birth to a baby and you care for it. And then you, and then you, you, you give it away and you hope that it's, it's grown up. And, you know, when I wrote my book, it, it was a little bit harder than that. It was, it was like, you know, cutting this growth off your body and getting it out there and then saying, okay, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with this. It's, it's just a lot of work and it's a struggle. And I think the film does kind of capture that. I, I, I don't know how cohesive it is with, you mentioned the side character played by Odessa Young, and she is positioned as one of the main characters, and she's the focus of the film for part of the time. She She's our eyes. Uh, she is our eyes inside of this world, and it's also about her trying to grow up and her trying to find out who she is as a person. She married young. She's having a child, and I, I don't know how all that flows together so well, and the end feels a bit untidy to me uh, so I, th I think that's probably to the film's weakness but it, it does nail a couple of things and I, i've got to hand it to to the movie when it when it hits those hard well i'd argue that the all of these disparate uh plot strands and character arcs do end up coming together in painting kind of this this picture of of feminine genius, I guess, or, or, or feminine creativity, at least we'll go that far. It, I feel like there's, there's so many movies where we get the, the myth of masculine genius. You know, you get movies like, uh, Capote or, um, Phantom Thread, like Daniel Day-Lewis's character in Phantom Thread is this, this guy who's just so good at what he does. And the, the privilege that he claims from that is just treating the people around him however he wants to treat them. He just claims his genius as license to live as he pleases, and he doesn't want other people uh, imposing on that. I think this film does something similar, but Decker lends it a different feel than something like Phantom Thread. You get the sense that in, in this film, uh, Shirley Jackson's genius uh, takes the form of being just ferociously unwilling to make space, to accommodate other people, to be agreeable, to fit the type of the dutiful wife or the well-mannered female artist. Like th These are all attributes that under normal circumstances, and at least especially for the wife of a prominent academic as 
Jackson is, that these these are all kind of roles that society would expect of a woman in her position. And her refusal to really play by those rules, to be intentionally uh, rude to people, or to refuse to put on makeup or to do her hair when receiving company. All of these things are very much, it's it's another portrait of an artist kind of being standoffish and that's part of their genius. But as framed by Decker here, it's it's got a different quality than the male genius that we're used to seeing. It's related, but it's not exactly the same. And I think it's interesting to watch that developed in the multiple different directions that it has developed over the course of this film. I like the review that Sheila O'Malley put up on RogerEbert.com, and she has an overall very positive take on the film. And she notes a scene. I think it's more towards the end of the movie, where Jackson is at a party and she spills wine on a couch and she decides to to rub it and the hostess says no you know don't rub it dab it and it's a great illustration of being on the in and being on the out being the woman who does exactly what she's supposed to do she she dabs and then you have Jackson, who is a unique and talented individual, and she goes about her life very differently. And I think that's a great scene to really touch on this film and to encapsulate uh, this movie. I, I do think there's this, there's this heavy presence in the movie, and, and part of that is just it just makes it not all enjoyable, uh, this ominous plucky music there's this heaviness to this atmosphere of jackson and her mental state but also of stuhlbarg's stanley who is not a terrible husband but he's not a great husband and then on top of that the way this couple talks to each other so stuhlbarg as he's talking to moss they're conversing it's as if they're inside of a book they say dear loved ones simpletons and it gives us this uh this intellectual uh pride and this intellectual air they are looking down on everyone around them uh while at the same time the people around them are are looking down at them, specifically uh, Jackson. And it, it does offer this really unique picture of artistic genius and what goes into that. And to be truly original, which is a good thing in art, is not always a good thing in just our day-to-day lives. Well, there's a reason that I the two movies that just kind of occurred to me off the top of my head as I was watching this one were Capote and Phantom Thread. Capote, because in that film, we really explore what it's like when somebody's devotion to their art kind of supersedes all other concerns. And in this film, we also get the sense that Jackson wants to make something great. And the relationships around her, the stories that she hears, the individuals that she interacts with, it's its not that she's utterly indifferent to them, but it's more that they're all material to her. They, they all kind of feed into uh, her genius, and they, they come out in the form of her writing. And meanwhile, while she's doing that creation, the, the relationships kind of bend and shift in order to accommodate that that use of the relationship i guess so the the relationship between jackson and odessa young's rosie the this this young wife uh starts off being adversarial it it morphs into friendship it eventually turns quasi romantic but it's it's odd it's oddly it's almost like they there's emotion involved, but there's also something else. There's something that they're both trying to get out of that liaison that they can't get 
with the relationships with the men in their lives and they find it in each other but it's not it's not love it's more it's they they both need to get something for themselves and i think that that's a really interesting thread for decker to pull on and i think it feeds into the reason why phantom thread was the other film that i immediately thought of phantom thread shows this relationship that first we kind of think oh one person is in control and the other person is sort of being dominated by him and then as the film goes on we begin to realize no these people are kind of they're <laughs> intertwined in this relationship where they're very it's a very toxic relationship but the toxicity isn't completely one way or at least they need each other and the toxicity is a part of that need and we see that in the relationship between Moss and Stuhlbargen here where they're they're both um arguably very bad people <laughs> Stuhlbarg especially is just this this particular brand of charismatic intelligent professor that just uses that charisma and intelligence as a facade to hide some real nastiness and yet at the end it's not so much he's being nasty to her or she's you know fighting back against him it's more that they feed off of each other and in the end they kind of they kind of need each other in order to do what they do and i think that's it's interesting that decker takes that perspective on their relationship rather than seeing easy uh, audience surrogates and heroes and villains in, in this story. Yeah, and this, this film raises a question that has been talked about for a very long time. So it's, it's not anything new. And it's something that was actually, I mentioned Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, but it's something that was talked about then too, is... Can you be a genius and can you be successful? Can you have drive, intelligence, uniqueness, individuality, and not be a jerk? And I'm trying to think about this film and wrap my head around what exactly it's saying. It definitely doesn't present Jackson's life as something uh, to be sought after. At the same time, this film does seem to suggest that the darkness around her and in her relationship propels her art and that that darkness somehow her uniqueness her strangeness made her great now obviously like i mentioned this is a this is what i understand it's based on a novel there are some creative liberties with this depiction of Jackson's life. They're childless here in the in the film. I believe they had three or four children in real life. So this is an interpretation. It's really kind of digging into art and what that means and creation. So I don't know how much bearing it has on the real Jackson herself. But the idea of what does it take to be a good artist? Do you have to be a tortured soul? And the film says maybe. And I, I'm not sure if it I guess I'm not sure how to take it. I'm not sure if by the end of it we're like, well, it's just it's just what happens sometimes to produce something good that's dark that just really digs into the depths of our humanity. I don't know. In Steve Jobs, we get a, a turn where he does seek redemption. And I know that turn for many people is a little too on the nose and it's, it is quick, but it does imply that we do need other people, that there is a way out, that being a genius isn't the only thing that's going to help us find purpose and meaning in life. I'm, I'm not sure where where we land in Shirley, and maybe we're not supposed to land at a specific place. Maybe we're supposed to just sit here and kind of watch art be created and then really just think it through and think through the process in our mind and come to our own conclusions. That's something I'm still puzzling over myself. My initial reaction to this film's final act is to feel like the tension at the heart of the relationship between Shirley Jackson and uh, the the young wife Rosie that there there's this inherent tension where it, it's quasi romantic and then there there's almost the sense that Jackson is less of a, a partner and more or, or a friend and more of a mentor to Rosie, kind of showing her the ropes of what it's like to be married to a a man who who thinks because of his academic accomplishments that he's really hot stuff and what what to do 
when you're the 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 woman who's almost invisible in that equation like what when you're the one who has to do the the unglamorous work of staying at home and cooking the meals and taking care of the child where where's where do you go with that and there's this implication that well you go mad there's a, a line where jackson says lost little girls what what's the fate of all lost little girls they go mad and there's a sense that that happens with rosie but i do think that decker maybe doesn't quite bring that part of the film home as strongly as the parts with jack that relate to jackson and her writing itself but then again, I also kind of appreciate how there is this elusive quality to that aspect of the film that I'm still trying to figure out. And it's 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 interesting to think about. And I almost kind of want to go back and watch the film again just to see if I can pull the, the ends of these threads a little bit more and and see what I what I discover. Maybe I won't discover anything, but pulling on those threads is is kind of enjoyable. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a, a good way to wrap up this review. Though I don't know if I'm all too excited about trying to watch this uh, movie again. Like I said, just wasn't a fan of the experience. Listeners, maybe you agree, maybe you don't agree. Shirley is currently streaming. It's available to rent. You can also check it out on Hulu. That's where I watch the movie. Make sure to tell us what you think about the film. You can tweet us at Pod. At CBeliefPOD, you can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We have reached the end of our episode. It's here that we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. You out there. Kevin, you're up first. What would you like to recommend this week? Well, I was thinking about how Shirley kind of takes us into the mind of a creative person and gives us a sense for what it's like to exist in that headspace for a little while. And that made me think about a film that really does that, only it's not a case of a director taking us into the mind of another creative person. It's the case of a director taking us into his own mind and letting us live there for a little while. I'm thinking, of course, of Akira Kurosawa's 1990 film, Dreams. And this is a film that consists of a series of vignettes. All of them are based on actual dreams that Kurosawa himself had at some point, and he just sort of presents them to us without comment and then moves on to the next one. And there are some maybe parallels that you can see in terms of the imagery and maybe some of the themes, but overall, Kurosawa's goal isn't to draw a common theme out of all of these dreams or to tie them together in any overt way, his goal is more just to present this beautiful dreamlike imagery to us and allow us to meditate on what it says about the human subconscious, what it says maybe about Kurosawa's own creative drives and, and concerns, but more so, you know, what what do what meaning do we find in the weird subconscious uh, randomness of another person's dreams. What what beauties can we find there? What terrors uh, and what lessons? All of those things are kind of swirling around in this film. It's absolutely beautiful to look at. It was one of the last films he ever made, and uh, it's just incredibly worth your time, especially if, like me, you are a huge Kurosawa aficionado. So yeah, definitely check out uh, 1990s Dreams, directed by Kurosawa. Yeah, I love Kurosawa. There's still so many of his films that I have not seen. I have not seen Dreams. I, I know it's one of those movies that if people, whether they like it or, or they or they just don't care for it, everybody seems to find it fascinating and worth talking about. And so uh, that's something I, I definitely need to watch here soon. Interesting. I mean, so many good ones. <laughs> In, it's it's interesting a uh, bit of trivia. It's one of uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, few film roles. He actually shows up in this film playing Vincent Van Gogh. So you know he Scorsese was a huge Kurosawa fanboy himself and was really excited to actually be in a Kurosawa movie for this. So you know maybe the, uh, a little bit of extra incentive to to check it out. That's great. You know I was watching the gallery. 
and it's a behind-the-scenes look at The Mandalorian, the Disney Plus television show. And Bryce Dallas Howard, she directed one of the episodes, and she talks about just hanging out with her dad, of course, Ron Howard, and how she went to Japan, and she went to dinner with him when she was a young girl, and he had dinner with George Lucas and Kurosawa, and she got to just kind of hang out and pal around, and then she eventually fell asleep during dinner. And uh, it's funny that you say that because I've I've seen pictures. I believe there are pictures out there with Scorsese and Kurosawa and some of the greats, and uh, it's just, yeah, it's pretty crazy that all those people kind of got together back Way back when uh, we lost, we lost a treasure with Kurosawa. Yeah, we definitely did. Now I am extremely jealous of Bryce Dallas Howard. So thanks for that. <laughs> and she got to be in the Jurassic World. So uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'm not so jealous of her anymore. Uh, well, I am going to recommend a film that's actually, I feel like it's been recommended uh, pretty regularly in the last couple of weeks, and that is Destin Daniel Critton's just mercy so this is a film about a very famous civil rights defense attorney as a young man brian stevenson and he works to free a wrongly condemned death row prisoner now michael b jordan plays stevenson and jamie fox plays the prisoner this is one of those movies that it's not perfect and i think sometimes the plot is a little too convoluted but it works like gangbusters in the emotion department it features scenes that really place us into the positions of some of these characters and force us to just kind of sit there and watch there's there's one death row scene that is just uh it's extremely well done so i would encourage our listeners to definitely check this out like i said it's been recommended by so many people in this last week i watched it a couple months ago i believe it was really liked it it's available to stream for free in a number of different places i I think amazon prime is one of those places but you can find it kind of all over the place if you have not seen the 2019 film just mercy check it out i i feel bad because it was released when a lot of films were being released at the end of 2019 beginning of 2020 I, i just don't think it got the recognition that it deserved i think it's a well-made movie and hopefully more people will will check it out here in the near future oh yeah that's a a film that i haven't had chance to catch up with yet myself and it's true what you say that just kind of it came out at a time when just so many other great movies were coming out and it kind of got lost in the shuffle but from what i hear it's it's a real shame that that happened because it seems like a strong film so i'll definitely have to make time for it soon yeah especially because it is it's kind of everywhere now and and it's it's awesome that they they have that out there people can watch that for for free so our listeners can check it out that's the end of our episode kevin i don't want to give too much away but we have a new Spike Lee film to review next week. The Five Bloods is going to be premiering on Netflix June 12th, which is when this episode drops. So I am just really pumped. This is a big movie, and it's great that we can, you know, check it out. We'd love to see it in theaters if possible, but it's just not, you know, it's not going to happen. But we can check it out on Netflix, and, and I'm, I'm pumped to talk about it. For sure. I'm looking forward to that one with a lot of anticipation myself. Yeah. So listeners, make sure to check back in next week. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.